Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for joining us for Brain Talks. Um, I'm excited to say um, that we are going to talk today about the topic, is it just normal aging or a sign that something else may be wrong? Joining me today is William Burke, um, MD. He's the director of the Stead Family Memory Center at the Banner Alzheimer's Institute and research professor of psychiatry at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, um, joining me from Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks very much, um, Bill, for joining me today. Um, sorry to those of you who uh, may have joined us earlier. We had a little bit of technical difficulties, but we're back up again, and it's great to have you, Bill. Thanks very much for asking me. So I want to start first with just the topic of normal aging. Um, I know I personally experience um, worries over my memory. Uh, maybe I've forgotten a name one too many times. Um, what is normal aging? And should we all expect our memories um, to get worse as we get older? Well, I think uh, to start with, it's important that the vast majority of people uh, maintain their memory and their other cognitive functions as we get older. <clears throat> there are some things that uh, uh, are maintained well into late life, like vocabulary, judgment, uh, some types of problem solving we do at least as well in late life as we do younger. And then, then there are some other uh cognitive abilities that do tend to decline somewhat, uh, some types of memory, some types of attention, some types of being able to shift uh, attention back and forth between uh, different uh, uh, activities. But overall, um, I think the normal decline that we experience is enough to make most people these days quite quite nervous about those normal changes, and it's drawing that line between what's normal and what's not that really is a, a tricky problem. So when we know um, that we're uh, pre-symptomatic for Alzheimer's disease, that there are, um, in many cases, the plaques, um, beta amyloid plaques in our brain, but let's just talk a little bit about what goes on inside the brain when we age. Do we know um, what happens if you don't have Alzheimer's um, inside our brains and it's just normal aging? Well, uh, the, the answer with most human uh, uh, physiology is that there's a broad range of uh, what goes on. So there is some shrinkage on average. So our brains kind of get a little smaller. Our brains get less efficient in their use of energy uh, uh, as time goes on. But there's not any one specific uh, part of the brain that necessarily is impacted out of proportion unrelated to a disease. Uh, the things we tend to think about, of course, are Alzheimer's disease. The other really very common effect are changes in the blood vessels, uh, which impact the ability for oxygen to get to the brain, nutrients to get to the brain. So there's lots of things going on in that little box above our shoulders. And uh, uh, I, I don't know that we uh, necessarily have sorted out which of those things are most important for the subtle changes we see as we age. 
Okay, and we just got a question from a viewer who asks, is it normal, um, oh, did we lose you, Bill? I think we've lost you for some reason. Uh, I'm back, I think. Oh, there you are, you're back. Okay, I lost you for a bit. Um, we just got a um, question from a viewer who says, um, when is it normal to notice a decline in memory? In your 30s, in your 40s? Uh, I think for most people, um, you can. This is a little depressing, uh, but you can. For some cognitive functions, in, in the teens and early twenties is probably your peak, and then there's a very gradual decline over time. Um, importantly, for most people, none of those changes really are functional changes. They don't affect your independence. They may be enough so that you notice them. Um, and they are very incremental. Uh, so uh, the, the age thing, we know it starts early, that uh, there are some things that you're, you're just never going to be quite as good at uh, as you were when, say, you were 20. Okay, I, I have to agree. I, now I do feel depressed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I've always wondered this. Um, you know, I'm a mom of three children, and, you know, when we're pregnant, we always say, oh, my memory's going. It's because of pregnancy. Is, is there any truth to that? Well, uh, I, I don't know that pregnancy per se has been identified with really any cognitive disorder that, you know, once you tease apart not sleeping well, uh, you know, kind of all the physiologic changes that happen. We certainly don't think of people losing IQ points or uh, any substantial cognitive function before and after pregnancy, but there's a lot of physiologic change going on in the body, obviously, at that time. Uh, say nothing of the stress of being pregnant, being a new mother. So I, I think I would tend to attribute changes to those sorts of issues rather than uh, changes in the brain per se. Do we actually lose IQ points when we get older, as we get older? Not necessarily. Again, uh, IQ tests are made up of batteries of tests and they test all these different cognitive functions. So we definitely do less well on some tests as we get older but the changes tend to be subtle. So when we see people say and do neuropsychological testing and we follow people sometimes for several years, you know, our expectation is that those tests are not gonna change, uh, that they're gonna stay stable in the absence of disease. Okay, and we're getting another question in. This one comes up a lot actually. Um, are there any everyday brain exercises or tricks that keep the memory sharp, and what's the latest verdict on on uh, brain games like crossword puzzles? So again, this is, you can get lots of different answers about this. I will give you my uh, particular uh, uh, take. So I think in the realm of psychosocial intervention, so things that you can do that. Uh, are really dependent on your own motivation, your own activity. By far the best evidence is for exercise. So physical exercise uh, is just clearly beneficial. Uh, there was a study from Sweden just in the last month where they took women who had been followed carefully for more than 20 years. They divided them into seven bands of fitness uh, and looked at uh, their likelihood to develop dementia later in life. 
<clears throat> and if you took that top uh, band of, of women, the top seventh uh, band of women, uh, they were 90% less likely to develop dementia than the people uh, at the bottom of the uh, activity level. And even having being in the average level cuts your risk in half. So we see that repeatedly. That study is particularly good because it followed the same group of women for such a long time. So I would say exercise is kind of the top of the pile. Uh, beyond that, you know, we think a lot about diet. We think a lot about mental activity and the like. Uh, if you are particularly devoted to a single mental activity, you can really train yourself to get better at it. So if you really work at um, memorizing, say, a list of words, and you kind of use some techniques to get better at memorizing a list of words, you can get pretty good at memorizing a list of words. But it does not seem to really carry over into any other uh, arena. So it tends to be really specific for the activity that you focused on. Uh, you know, this whole area about mental activity sometimes is called the, the mental muscle hypothesis. So is your brain a muscle that you can make stronger by exercising? And there's all kinds of evidence and some of it uh, suggests that being engaged in novel, challenging mental activity is good for you, like learning a language. Um, uh, you know, my patients ask me all the time, you know, whether they benefit from doing online kind of brain games, uh, doing puzzles uh, and the like. There's really not very much evidence when you look at those things just by themselves. The most successful interventions have incorporated those kind of activities into physical activities, social activity, good general health. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, there is a strong bias built into all of those uh, research questions in that it presupposes that people have the energy uh, and the interest uh, to participate. And we know, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, the kind of loss of interest and apathy is often one of the earliest symptoms that develop. So it's hard to compare people who might be having some brain changes, which are knocking out their interest in activities and staying active, and then trying to say that that's actually a prevention strategy. So. I, I think we just don't know enough to be confident about that. So I, I just want to go back to the exercise because there, like you mentioned, there has been a lot of promising research around exercise, but does it pertain more to the onset of Alzheimer's rather than can we really just improve our memory by exercising? Oh, I think, again, the studies that have looked just specifically at memory uh, have found mixed results. Uh, some have been positive. Uh, I think general cardiovascular health, uh, you can see uh, cognitive gains uh, in a wide variety of studies that have been done over the year. So I would say that Again, if you just kind of look at the panel of things within your control, exercise is the one thing that if there is an effect, it's probably exercise. Okay. And then we're, we're getting more questions in. Um, one of them um, says, do you, at what age, if any, um, 
Do you recommend taking a baseline cognitive test um, to keep track of your memory and cognitive abilities? Because that's a that's a really good point. We all have different ability when it comes to memory. So, you know, you've got to know where you're starting, right, in order to understand if there if there is and how significant the decline is. Yeah, and it, this is a really good question, and it, it comes at a uh, – this is an interface between kind of the research that I'm interested in and the clinical care that I give and just kind of me as a gradually getting older person. Uh, you know, where exactly uh, – you know, how do you establish that baseline? From a clinical perspective, so as a doctor who sees people with memory problems, a, a baseline – is probably not that important. Your best baseline is actually your social network. So the person who knows you best uh, is going to be the most important person in terms of, are you different than you were a year ago? Are there things that you could do a year ago that you can't do now? There's, you could do elaborate neuropsychological testing and none of it is as effective as just asking someone who really knows the person are they different? Have they changed? What What is different? And so I, I think I'm resistant to the idea that I would invest a lot of energy in necessarily doing some kind of formal uh, neuropsychological baseline. Uh, if, if there's a clinically significant difference, it's going to be apparent uh, to, to your loved one. So I, I would probably more focus uh, uh, on that. They're the best gauge. Yeah. Okay, so, and, and other questions coming in. Um, irrespective of when the decline might be noticed, how long before this do you believe um, the physiological changes um, that may culminate um, in a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease um, begin to occur? So, um, you know, the, a lot of, a lot of um, imaging studies, um, we know a lot more today. So what, what's your feeling on that? How, how, how far uh, ahead of time are things really, or I should say, how, um, how far back do things present themselves before we really know there's anything wrong? Well, uh, we know that amyloid accumulates in the brain 15, 20 years before people develop dementia. Uh, to me, uh, sometimes that people interpret that as being kind of bad news. Uh, to me and kind of our group and other people, that really is uh, an exciting opportunity <clears throat> in that it really basically is the window for prevention. So we can identify that, yes, this person is starting to accumulate what we believe is a, a toxic uh, protein and gives us an opportunity to, to try to intervene. There are different markers in the brain that kind of happen at different times. So tau protein accumulates in the brain much closer to when people actually start to develop memory problems. Uh, we see changes in uh, this part of the brain in blood glucose utilization, where the brain doesn't use glucose very well in these areas that are really uh, important for language and for visual spatial abilities. And that change, uh, we may see you know, 15, 20 years to some extent and gradually becomes more apparent uh, over time. 
So most people won't get a PET scan because they're too expensive, they're not covered by insurance, where we could actually tell if there is plaque in our brains um, from the imaging or for, from a spinal tap, a lumbar puncture. Um, most, that's not ordinary procedure because um, you know most people, uh, it's, it's very expensive and not accessible to a lot of people. Um, so, but I'm wondering, and I've wondered this for a while, um, if there is the presence of plaque in your brain, um, let's say uh, you're in your 40s and there's evidence of plaque in your brain, does that mean that you will definitely get Alzheimer's disease? Well, it's an excellent question. I, I think we're very, very uh, uh, concerned that we don't necessarily know the answer to that question. And so let me put it in these terms. If you take a group of uh, slightly older people, so 70-year-old people, or early 70s, you do uh, amyloid scans in all those people, regardless of whether they have memory problems or not. A third of the people with normal memory will have amyloid in their brain. So the question is, is are those the people who have pre-Alzheimer's disease, who are gonna develop Alzheimer's disease. Kind of our international and the US organization that sets up research criteria, basically wants to get people into the Alzheimer's spectrum at this point and say, if you have it in your brain, you are in the Alzheimer's continuum, if you will, and you have Alzheimer's disease, but you have no symptoms yet. So that literally is in the US anyhow, has just been a change. I mean, these criteria just came out in the last month. So for research, uh, the answer is if you have amyloid, you are going to be considered to be in the spectrum. Um, I don't know that we necessarily have all the data to prove that uh, because you would have to follow people for long periods of time. There are people who have amyloid in their brain who die with amyloid in their brain and never have developed dementia. So, you know, inflammation we think is also important. So if you look at people's brains at the time of death and you look at where there's amyloid in the brain, you will see inflammatory cells around the amyloid in the brain. So I, I, I'm reluctant to make it as simple as amyloid equals Alzheimer's disease, but at least for research right now, we've simplified it to do you have amyloid or not? Do you have tau protein or not? And do you have neurodegeneration or not? So those three big categories are the way that clinical studies are gonna be set up uh, in the coming years. Let's talk a little bit about um, the genetically predisposed, um, those who carry uh, what's known as the Alzheimer's gene, APOE4. Um, you can either have um, one or two um, copies of, of E4, um, which elevates your chance of, of uh, getting Alzheimer's disease. Um, where are you? I, I think when we talk about is it normal aging or is there something really wrong or am I uh, a more likely candidate? I know when my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, now I think all the time, it, you know, is this is is this going to happen to me? So where are you on? Should people get genetically tested? Should they get the test to find out if they're at a higher risk? 
So up until the last few years, my answer to that question was no, uh, because it was really information that you couldn't really do anything with. Uh, I moved specifically to Phoenix uh, to work at Banner because of the prevention trials that are now underway. And now, if you're the sort of person who would want to participate in research based on the knowledge of whether you had these risk genes or not, then yes, I would think it makes sense to, uh, to find out. <clears throat> if you're not going to participate in research, another reason is just to be informed. Uh, some people feel like uh, they are in more control if they have an idea about what the future might bring. The tricky thing about APOE, though, is that it is not really a uh, gene that if you have it, you necessarily develop the disease. So it increases your risk, but it is not destiny. So many people who have one copy or two copies of APOE4 will live out a normal life, never develop any kind of memory problems. So we try to be really careful when we disclose this information that people have a good sense of what their risk actually is. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but a question just came um, in and I think it's relevant. It says, I too am curious about the genetic factor. If Alzheimer's is prevalent in your family history, are you more likely to develop Alzheimer's? Yeah, and, and it's a wonderful question. And so among the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, having an APOE gene is a risk factor. Having a family member uh, <clears throat> is a risk factor. They're roughly the same magnitude of risk. Uh, so maybe three or four fold compared to somebody who doesn't have a first degree family member. Uh, APO, you know, if you have one copy of APOE3, maybe three fold risk over what somebody who doesn't have an APOE. Uh, E4 gene. The other really important thing not to lose track of uh, with risk of typical Alzheimer's disease is that the most important risk factor is actually age. So you have to live long enough to uh, be at risk. And uh, the APOE gene has a strong effect on what age you are when you develop Alzheimer's disease. So if I have no copies of APOE4 and I develop Alzheimer's disease, my average age of onset's roughly 80. Uh, if I have one copy of APOE4 and I develop Alzheimer's disease, I'm gonna be in my mid 70s. Uh, and if I have two copies of E4, uh, average age of onset's gonna be in the late 60s. So there's a 15 to 20 year spread uh, based on uh, whether you have APOE4 genes or not. So those two things kind of are important to consider together. When people ask me, you know, I have loved ones in my family who have Alzheimer's disease, how worried should I be? Uh, and, you know, what I always want to know is how old were they when they developed Alzheimer's disease? Somebody who developed Alzheimer's disease at 90, I think, uh, you know, you got to live to be 90 to probably have much risk of developing the disease, at least based on that. But if somebody tells me they were, you know, their mother, their father was 60 or 65, then I'm more concerned that there might be a genetic factor in play. And then I even be more interested in perhaps having genetic testing. Uh, but this is something that, um, you know, I talk to people about this all the time and 
there are people who really want to know and people who really, really don't want to know. And I understand yeah. both sides of that coin. Yeah. Um, and that's why I guess genetic counseling is getting more popular. It's definitely um, worth it, I think, to understand what you what information we can extract from our genetics before we actually see it. Right. Um, yeah. uh, another thing I, I want to ask you is like, let's talk a little bit. I, I want to come back to the clinical trials and where they're where they're heading. But but what I want to focus on right now is because uh, we this comes up all the time for people like me, um, you know, because I'm staring Alzheimer's in the face um, through my mom. Um, I now constantly think about my my memory. And I think that's probably a pretty normal reaction. But for me, I, I think, oh, wow, I, I'm you know, I, I can't remember something. Um, I'm, I can't remember people's names or, oh, wow, somebody came up to me and, you know, they were they were talking to me and I had no idea who they were. So at what point should someone like me say, mm, I don't know, maybe it's time to go talk to a doctor? It's a really difficult question to answer. So <clears throat> when I was, um, uh, my wise guy answer to this that I used to tell medical students is when we, I worked in a memory disorders clinic for <clears throat> many years in a prior job and we would see people and I would have the medical students go talk to them and, you know, kind of sort out, you know, um, you know, does this person have problem with their memory or not? And, you know, my general rule of thumb for them was that if the person tells you they have memory problems, they almost certainly do not. And if they say they don't have any memory problems and they're in a memory clinic, then they have significant memory problems. So one of the really tough things about Alzheimer's disease is that with the onset of the disease, most people don't remember that they don't remember. Uh, so the typical person I see in my clinic I ask them, so why are you here today? They point at their husband, uh, their wife, and uh, they made me come uh, and deny that there's anything wrong with them. So this subjective concern that we have, uh, if you have a family history of dementia, you get really sensitized to your own abilities. And every time you have a little glitch, then you really start to worry and be concerned. So, you know, I, I would say kind of uh, my first advice would be deep breath. Uh, if you're worried about it, that's a good sign. Uh, to be less facetious about it, uh, the uh, subjective memory concerns is what we call what you're talking about, where I have the subjective sense that my memory's not as good as it used to be. And if you look at that over many years, it, it is a risk factor to go on to develop more serious memory problems. But again, the vast majority of people don't. Uh, so it, it's, um, the other example I would use is we talk about mild cognitive impairment. And yeah. for those Which not usually people get di a diagnosis of MCI before they ever get Alzheimer's diagnosis. Right. And the distinction really is kind of normal aging, mild cognitive impairment, where the person definitely has some cognitive difficulties, but they're completely independent, uh, normal functionally. And then dementia is when people start having functional difficulties. But even if we look at the stage of mild cognitive impairment and you look at people over 
the course of a year, 85% of them after a year will still have mild cognitive impairment or have improved. After five years, 50% uh, will still be cognitively uh, right where they were. So even people who have pretty significant memory problems don't necessarily get on a, a trajectory that's uh, all one way. Uh, so I, there's just a lot of variation uh, in, in uh, uh, the system. Okay, so, so tonight um, I'll interrogate my husband and find out if he's noticed anything has been wrong. But let's say you go in with your partner um, to see a doctor because maybe your partner or you have concerns about your memory. Um, what are the questions that we should be asking doctors to get the best possible answers um, about where we are and whether or not there's a problem? Well, to me, I guess my goal in going into the doctor is uh, trying to see if there's something going on that needs to be identified, that there's something that could be done about it. So reversible causes of cognitive impairment. <clears throat> and, and generally, I would go in and uh, tell my doctor, you know, I'm concerned about my memory. Um, you know, they may do a little bit of cognitive screening, which may or may not be helpful. Uh, if you're really anxious, sometimes you don't do very well on those tests, so that can be kind of tricky. <clears throat> but there is kind of a core group of things that I am always really uh, very concerned about. So I'm always concerned about depression uh, and anxiety. Uh, I'm always concerned particularly about thyroid function, uh, concerned about vitamin B12 levels, uh, interested in just kind of general blood chemistry and blood count. And then I want to do a neurologic exam to see if there's any sign of something affecting the brain that uh, we can see a, a signal. So has there been a stroke? Is Might there be a tumor in the brain? <clears throat> so you can do a lot just strictly with a, uh, a pretty straightforward physical exam, some really basic laboratory testing, some really basic paper and pencil testing, and uh, sort out whether there's something serious uh, going on or not. And particularly, uh, just, you know, that kind of subjective anxiety uh, really plays a role. So what uh, one thing I'm curious about is B12. B12 comes up a lot. What do we know about the role of B12 um, and, and brain health? Well, uh, it is a vitamin, so it is something that we have to uh, uh, ingest. It's kind of a tricky vitamin in the way our bodies uh, take it up, depend on a, a factor called intrinsic factor that's secreted in our stomach. And people who have uh, gastric disease sometimes can't absorb uh, vitamin B12. Uh, vitamin B12 is really important, particularly for uh, our peripheral nervous systems. They are uh, the nerves that are important for balance and for uh, vibration. Um, B12 is critical for those. So people sometimes have balance problems and will fall. But more generally, there's an effect on mood, effect on cognition, and, uh, you know, there are people who have what's called pernicious anemia, where their vitamin B12 levels are very low. And those are people who, if we replace their vitamin B12, often they get a, a nice rebound in their 
cognitive functioning. But for, again, the average person, if you eat kind of leafy vegetables, if you eat a, a diet, uh, our bodies are really good at extracting B12. So we test for it a lot. The number of people who actually are B12 deficient is relatively small. Okay, um, another question coming in um, saying, assuming you go into your healthcare practitioner and find out that your memory concerns are not based on any other health issue, what strategies would you recommend for that individual moving forward? So the key thing I think at that point for me would be to get a diagnosis. Uh, so what is going on? What is the explanation? Uh, you know, is this a dementia? So dementia is kind of the umbrella term. Uh, there's many, many kinds of dementia. I want to know what the cause of dementia is. Again, really trying to sort out what could be done to uh, ameliorate any of the symptoms. Uh, say the news comes back that, you know, this is Alzheimer's disease or this is some other form of dementia. The other thing that I think is just really important uh, at that juncture is to uh, do some thoughtful planning about the future. Uh, uh, I, I think your uh, being patient had a nice uh, column about uh, this looking forward and being uh, expressing your wishes and uh, trying to take advantage of a time when you are going to have really a lot of, uh, you know, perhaps your best chance at uh, kind of saying what you want the future to roll out as. And then I think uh, I really want my family uh, involved. I want them to learn as much about this condition uh, as I possibly can. Uh, we think that you know, having families well-educated, caregiver well-educated from the get-go uh, keeps people at home, uh, makes everybody happier, uh, you know, just learning some basic communication strategies. Uh, you know, one of the things that I often tell people is that, you know, as parents, we are just hardwired when our child doesn't do what we told them to do to say it again and say it louder. But if you do that with somebody who has short-term memory problems, that's a disastrous way to deal with it. So you have to really rewire yourself in terms of how you react to things and uh, really try to uh, learn some more effective strategies. Absolutely. I think um, anyone who has a, a relative with Alzheimer's learns that pretty quickly, you know, and that reaction of what's wrong with you, it just can't be applied um, in the case of memory loss. Um, another question coming in um, from a viewer saying, so generally um, the MOCA test, which is the early assessment um, memory test, um, is not sufficient enough because I feel like this is what doctors, especially here in Canada are primarily doing with no other testing. So I guess the question is, is the MOCA, are those early assessment tests that doctors give patients enough to indicate uh, that there is indeed a problem? Well, uh, I don't want to get in trouble with my Canadian colleagues. Uh, <laughs> there, there is a difference in uh, 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 between our countries in terms of how uh, we approach some of these things. Uh, a clear example in Canada, for example, is that if a person has a normal neurologic exam, 
uh, a brain imaging study may not be done. Uh, in the United States, as part of kind of a, that initial evaluation, we would almost always do some kind of brain imaging. So the MOCA is kind of a version of that. The MOCA, the Montreal Assessment of Cognitive uh, Ability, is basically a 30-point test. We want people to score 26 or higher. I think it's probably the best of the short screening instruments that's out there. The really helpful thing about it is that it has a section that covers visual spatial abilities, uh, which some of the other testing doesn't. It has a section about language, which is really important for Alzheimer's disease. And it has a good delayed short-term memory section, which is also important for Alzheimer's disease. So I think, you know, if, if I were to see someone, their history was absolutely typical. Uh, they had typical symptoms otherwise. They had typical problems on the MOCA. I'm not sure that I would necessarily expose them to, you know, a three or four hour neuropsychological evaluation. So we tend to reserve that more in-depth evaluation when there are things in the history that don't make sense or if there are things that turn up on the physical exam or laboratory or their other uh, uh, if, if a person, say, has significant depression or anxiety, uh, if they have significant psychiatric symptoms, we may do much more in-depth uh, neuropsychological paper and pencil testing. But I don't think that everybody who uh, has Alzheimer's disease necessarily needs to go through that gauntlet of having uh, three to four hours of uh, testing. Um, I want to ask a question in, in kind of an op opposite angle of how we usually ask it. Are there things that we do, environmental or behavioral things, that can actually make our memory worse? Um, you know, maybe drinking a few glasses of wine a night or, you know, one to three glasses of wine. Um, are there things that we do lifestyle-wise that can actually make our memory worse and, and put us at higher risk for dementia? Yeah, so the, the list of things, I think, uh, you know, probably uh, smoking and excess alcohol use uh, would be kind of right at the top that, you know, you can basically destroy your brain, your blood vessels, uh, smoking and uh, using alcohol to excess. <clears throat> you know, uh, not exercising, eating a terrible diet, uh, you know, we always say, you know, what's good for your uh uh, hard is good for your brain. And I think, you know, the good news about that is that, you know, we have cut the rate of heart attacks and stroke anywhere between the third to a half in a generation uh, in the United States. Uh, that's incredible. And really, almost all of that was public health. Uh, people, you know, taking better care of themselves, paying attention to their blood pressure, people not smoking, people eating a more healthy diet. And there's still an enormous amount that could be done, um, you know, just based on those simple factors. Uh, you know, the Nunn study, which was um, has a famous study in the dementia world, looked at the sisters in Notre Dame who contributed their brains to science at the time of their death. 
the sisters in general ended up being kind of in their 80s uh, at the time of their death. But they were a, a population of women who didn't smoke uh, in general. They didn't drink to excess. They lived in a, a social environment. Uh, they got frequent exercise for the most part. And, you know, most of those women, they looked at their brain, did not have Alzheimer's disease. So they had, quote, unquote, mixed dementia, but a little bit of Alzheimer's disease, a little bit of uh, vascular change. So, you know, we're seeing study after study now, the rate of dementia starting to decline as time goes on. And that's almost all because we're I think going to remove the part of dementia that's due to vascular disease from the scenario that may make it look like Alzheimer's disease is becoming more frequent uh, because that's what's left largely when you take out vascular disease. But if we could remove the vascular disease component, it would have a huge impact uh, because many, many people have just some change of Alzheimer's disease and some vascular change. So you don't have to necessarily get both. If you can get the vascular part and improve that, uh, that may be enough that uh, a person would never develop dementia. Okay, and I want to end on clinical trials. Um, we get this comment on being patient all the time that, you know, I, I tried to sign up for a trial, but um, I was told I'm too young. Um, considering, I mean, Banner Alzheimer's Institute in, in Phoenix, where you are, is doing some incredible uh, trials on that pre-symptomatic stage, the genetically um, predisposed community. So what would, tell us what's going on um, for people who are maybe don't have Alzheimer's disease, they don't have a diagnosis, they don't have memory problems, how do they participate in clinical trials? And what's really going on um, in the prevention trials? So uh, if you think about we would all like to prevent Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we have some pretty good ideas about things that might be helpful in that regard from a kind of a medication perspective. But you have to, in order to do a study practically, you have to identify people who are at high enough risk that you think they might develop Alzheimer's disease in a relatively short period of time so that you can actually tell if something works or not. So that's really the, the heart of these studies. So we're looking for people who are at higher genetic risk based on their APOE. So people who have either one or two copies of APOE and then who are in a certain age range. So 60 to 75. So we think people who have two copies of APOE4 who are 60 to 75 are at high enough risk to develop Alzheimer's disease that they might want to participate in a prevention trial. The other study we're doing, people have one copy of APOE4 who also have a positive amyloid PET scan. So they, we know they have amyloid in their brain. They have one copy of E4. So we think they too are in a higher risk uh, to develop Alzheimer's disease. We, we get a lot of uh, people being unhappy with us because uh, I'm 55, I wanna participate. You know, we love people's interests, uh, help us find people in the 60 to 75 age group who want to do this, because at 55, you're just not at high enough risk to develop the disease. We have to follow you for 15 years, and uh, I probably don't have 15 years left in me to follow uh, someone in a trial. So I think we're trying to uh, 
balance this between people at high enough risk uh, so that we can come up with reasonable answers. So our Columbia trial in South America is based on people who have the really unusual single gene that causes the disease, where if you have the gene, you get the disease. Really, you're really. talking about the early onset. Are you talking about one of the onset? That's exactly right. So most of those people are in their 30s, 40s, uh, when they start developing symptoms. So that early onset forms uh, another prevention trial. So we're studying a big group of people there who have that particular risk factor, trying to prevent the disease in that group. But for typical Alzheimer's disease, this late onset Alzheimer's disease, there's several big prevention trials going on right now that roughly have the same kind of approach looking at people who have either amyloid or tau in their brain and who have ApoE4 uh, genes. And where would people go if they want to know what type of trials are going on um, at Banner and how they get involved? So the the, the best example, or the if I can, uh, a web page for our registry, uh, I think is the best place to go. So the Alzheimer's Prevention Registry, uh, if you type that into your browser, you'll come up with a, uh, uh, a opportunity to sign up with our registry. We have 300,000 people registered so far. We'd love that to be a million or more. And the idea of the registry is that you give us a few bits of personal information that we promise to take really good care of. And then we will send you information roughly once a month about what's going on in prevention research. And it has links in that to all the different trials that are uh, currently going on. Okay, and I, I wanna end on this question because I think it's a, it's a great question we got. Um, and one of the things that surprised me after my mom was diagnosed was Alzheimer's isn't a disease that just goes like this. You're, it, it's like this for a very long time. Um, so we have a viewer who said, um, thanks for sh to both of you for sharing this evening. People living with dementia often report their healthcare providers do not give them the tools to help them live well after the diagnosis, as if meaningful life effectively stops at the time of diagnosis, which of course is not true. What do you tell your patients and their care partners about living well after the diagnosis of dementia? That's an excellent question. Oh my word, that is just a wonderful question. Uh, I, this, this is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, we tell people that the goal of being seen at our institution is to transform Alzheimer's disease into just another chronic illness. Uh, we may not be able to cure the disease, but by golly, we are gonna help you live with this the very best you can. I think there is an appalling lack of education of physicians in this regard. And uh, we're doing a demonstration project right now in our Banner Health System to try to help primary care doctors be more confident about what they say, uh, how they identify resources. Uh, I will say for this audience, uh, if you go to our webpage, uh, which is Banner Alzheimer's Institute, we have a, uh, enormous number of resources 
that are available in terms of classes that we provide uh, to our patients and their families. We have webinars uh, that are there. All of this is in, uh, you're free to watch it. There's no charge to do, uh, to uh, take advantage of any of this information. But many, many of our materials are based on this basic idea of, you know, take advantage of what parts of your brain are still working. So, so what if your short-term memory is not very good? Uh, we have arts engagement classes. We have music engagement classes. We have all sorts of uh, things that we encourage families to be involved with. And I think social activity is really important uh, because that's, you know, people's brains stay socially alert and aware uh, late into the illness often. And that's something that we really uh, try to emphasize. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Bill Burke. And just for me to say, um, Banner Alzheimer's Institute is truly a special place and has a lot of integrated care and research. Um, they all are sit together. They talk to one another. They share a lot of information and provide a lot of extra services for people. Um, so I think their website is an enormous um, resource uh, for people who want to learn more. Um, Bill Burke, thank you so much for your time. Um, I found this conversation extremely helpful. I'm sure our viewers will too. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks very much, Deborah. Thanks.